Father in heaven, uh, we come before you. You are a sovereign God, and we just praise you for who you are. We thank you that uh, we can gather together and to uh, dig into your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit join us right now. Open our hearts and minds to uh, what you'd have us take from here. And then use it in our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So just by way of review, we focused last Wednesday on the fact that Christ uses a really unusual phrase to describe his relationship with the Father. He says, O righteous Father. And from there we develop some of the titles that Jesus used to describe his relationship with God the Father. Father, uh, Abba Father, and then Heavenly Father, Father, Lord of Heaven and Earth, Good, Living Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father. And I presented the idea that, uh, borrowing from Hebrew culture, that your name is very defining of who you are. And you have, actually, there's over, I think well over a dozen examples in the Old Testament of people going through name changes uh, because of the work of God in their lives. Sometimes for good, sometimes for evil. Uh, a name change that is very much shameful, but for others a name change that is very honorable. And, that, and then I presented the idea that, that, that there's a deeper lesson here regarding personal devotion. But I think there's some language we need to reserve for our Lord, you know? And just because the, the, the adolescent gets your order right at McDonald's, you know, the word awesome is probably not appropriate. Gee, awesome, you know, you got my order right. Awesome, yeah. No, I'm sorry. God is awesome. The person getting your order right at McDonald's isn't awesome. Uh, let's, let's think about using some words that are befitting for the Father and kind of making those his, you know? I think that's just a really good idea. So uh, today, tonight, we're going we're gonna to shift into, into John 18. Really excited about it. Now, what I wanted to show you here as a reminder for some things that we did a long time ago, probably a year and a half ago, we've been in John a long time, um, is that when the, when the evangelists, the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they wrote their Gospels, the early church saw them as being, certainly Matthew, Mark, Luke, being synoptic, soon optic, with you know, seeing, meaning they're almost identical, or very, very similar, they're seeing together, they're synoptics. And then John is just off the grid. Nothing's like John, what he does at all. So it's very atypical to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what the early church did is they developed icons to kind of do a theological summary of what, of, of how that evangelist presents Jesus, okay? So for Matthew, he is presented as this Moses-like figure. All right, he's like Moses. He's the great teacher. Just like Moses great, you know, gave the five books of Moses. You have the great five discourses in Matthew's gospel, these kinds of things. And then in Mark, you have him presented as a lion. And one of the things that led the early church to embrace that idea, Joni, is a Greek phrase called kai euthus, which in English is and immediately. And immediately. So Jesus said this to this person, and then kai euthus, and then went and did this, 
And then Kai Yuthus went and did that. He's like, he's like a lion bounding about Galilee, doing his work at this kind of ferocious, intense pace, leaping and bounding about. And, and which I think is, is, a, is a great a great thing. You're saying and, and and yeah, A and D, it's, it's the coordinating conjunction and, and immediately, and, you know, like, and this, and then, and that. So, yeah. And then Luke is, he's an ox. He's this great, powerful servant that is this load-bearing beast of burden that can just carry the weight of the world. And, and he bears up under the burdens and the problems of people. The most servant-oriented gospel is Luke. Uh, more compassion, more ink is spilled in Luke's gospel, gospel for women and children than all the other gospels. And it's really a beautiful and very tender gospel, what he does. Uh, and yet, regarding discipleship, can also be like a razor-sharp uh, gospel, too. You get the famous three criteria for being a disciple in Luke's gospel that you don't get in the others. And those, those famous criteria are, number one, take up your cross, follow me, Number two, turn your back on your family. And number three, this is the ouchy one. Take everything you own, sell it, give it away, follow me. And Luke says, if you don't do these three things, you're not going to be my disciple. Okay, that's a tough one. And then you've got John, and he's depicted as an eagle. Because spiritually, it's as though John's, the, the Jesus of the Gospel of John, the fourth evangelist, just soars high above all the mess of what's going on on earth and can think theologically, doctrinally, by truth, way above man's thoughts. And it's really this beautiful, deeply spiritual gospel. And so it's really fascinating. So with that as a bit of an intro, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna tackle verse, uh, or the opening uh, section of the Passion narrative. Now, um, a scholar has developed a chiasmus, uh, Bruce and, and Janice, that's really interesting. The chiasmus is the following, that there's an arrest in the garden. He is bound and led to trial, dropping down to the second A. Uh, regarding the resurrection, he is bound with burial clothes. He's in a garden, that there's a somatic, uh, very similar pattern here. Those are the A's, the bookends. Then we're going a little deeper, the two B's. The true high priest is tried unfairly. The beloved disciple is present. The true high priest carries wood, wood of his own cause, his own sacrifice, not unlike Isaac. The beloved disciple is present there. There's a reference to that. And then the core, and this is where the, this is the X that marks the spot, hence the chiasmus, that Jesus is the king of Israel. He's judged by Pilate, and he's rejected by his people. And that is the core concept that you get in what is called the passion narrative. Okay, now let's let's grab a little bit uh, some t- of time on the passion narrative. You're familiar with the French word genre. What is genre? It's a French word. What does it mean? Type. Type or classification, <clears throat> and we typically apply that to literature. What kind of literature are you writing? What is the genre? Is it poetry? Is it wisdom literature? Is it fiction? You know, what, what is it? Is it biography? Passion narrative is an actual genre. Okay, it's a death story. Okay. Um, it has been argued 
the, the four Gospels are death stories with long introductions. <laughs> That's what they are. And you kind of think of it, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Isn't he the sacrificial lamb that dies to take away the sin of the world? Sure. So it all leads up to the climactic moment where he's crucified. It's a death story. That's a genre in Latin, uh, illustrious exitus vivorum. It's, it's a type of writing where it is believed, uh, based on the Latin phrase, that your life is revealed in your death. How you die reveals who you are. Okay, makes sense? Remember the Roman policy on punishment, law and punishment? What's their, what's their philosophy on punishment when it comes to legal proceedings? What does punishment do? Bring out truth. What's that? Bring out truth. Brings out truth, yeah. So in our culture, you are, guilt, you, you are innocent until proven guilty, right? In Roman culture, it's the opposite. You're guilty until proven innocent. What oftentimes proves your innocence? Torture. Torture. <laughs> Absolutely. Flog him. Why? Because. That's why. And they would flog the poor fella uh, to see how you handle it. Because how you act in suffering reveals who you really are. And that's a core idea of the death story. And so, and by the way, the Hebrew people believe this too, not just the Romans or the Greeks. The Hebrews really embrace this. What a man says during the death process is absolutely defining of the man in Hebrew culture and defining of the blessing the man speaks, right? What is Israel, formerly known as Jacob, what does he do with his, with his boys? What does he do during his death process? He gathers them in one by one and, and speaks words that are both prophetic in the, in, in the Hebrew way of thinking but are also blessing, not just prophecy, but blessing. And sometimes those words are harsh when you look at what he says, right? And they stick <laughs> because what a man says during the death process reveals who the man is, okay? How you die reveals your character. What you say when you die reveals your character. So when you say the gospels are death stories along long introductions, wow. That is really what's going on. So we are now in John's absolutely fascinating and very unique death story that compared to the synoptics goes off grid again and does really peculiar things and you're thinking, why would he do that? Why does John do this? So, all right, let's look at, let's look at the text. Um, this is 18, one to three. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Let's park here just for a second. I want you to see this. North is going to be vertical straight up. So this is the Kidron Valley right here. Okay, And this flows southward in a southerly direction until it hits the Dead Sea. Okay, 
So we're talking about Jesus coming down this, this area here and crossing over the Kidron. And this is Gethsemane, right where I'm pointing. Okay? It's at the base of the Mount of Olives. And, in, and Gethsemane means olive press. And there's a, gar, there's a grove of olive trees. And most likely a very wealthy man owned this estate, owned this land. And it was considered private property, not owned by the village or by the city. And this man, in all likelihood, was very compassionate and supportive of Jesus. And he let, he let the guy stay there. They could go and spend the night in a safe place. Now, Dave, based on the Greek language of they entered and they exited this garden, means it was probably walled, which was a very common practice. Olive trees are very, very special. Life is in an olive tree, right? That's a part of their culture. So you would imagine that for estate boundaries and protection, that it was going to be a walled area. Okay. So um, let's go back here. So I want to read four to nine. So, um, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them that this is the cohort and the, the police sent by the Jewish officials. Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. That means the cohort and the Jewish police. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Verse 10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Wow. Absolutely fascinating. So... Let's walk through this and, and really draw, draw richly from what's going on here. So um, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's an allusion to John chapter 13 to John chapter 17, right? That great body of teaching known as the farewell discourse. Uh, they crossed the, the ravine of the Kidron. And by the way, it's, it is April. There is most likely a full moon over Israel right now because it's a time of Passover, all right? During the winter, it would be very, very hard to cross this because it can actually be a pretty dangerous stream during the rainy season, okay? And so in all likelihood, it was dry, and they crossed conveniently, okay? And there was an enclosed garden. Uh, this is the only time you're going to find the reference to the garden here. Uh, it's in John's Gospel. Uh, the word, uh, you know, it, it's, it's probably not an allusion to the Garden of Eden, although we would like to think of that. But 
the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the word for garden only once and prefers the word paradise rather than garden. So he enters with his disciples. That language, Johnny, reminds us of John 10, doesn't it? Didn't he talk about a fold and, and there was a doorkeeper and the good shepherd keeps the door and keeps the sheep and lets them enter and exit safely. There's an echo here that Jesus is proving himself to be the good shepherd. And it's the dangerous people that come over the wall. They're, very, they're thieves and they're robbers. Okay? Now Judas also, who was betraying him, uh, th that is a participle, it's active present tense. He is in the thick of it. It is live, it's no longer theory, it's no longer prophecy, he is actively betraying Christ. And it says, it's something that's kind of odd. Do you think it's funny that it says Jesus also was betraying him, knew the place? Why, why would the author say that? Because they've been there before. Exactly. Do you think it's redundant? No. Why? Yeah, yeah, which is good. So in all likelihood, that little phrase is there for future generations who are reading or hearing the gospel. That there was a tradition, we're not sure where it came from, probably could be pre-Markin, or it really could be Mark, who most likely wrote the gospel first. His, his earliest gospel is Mark. Uh, and he received that under the dictation of Peter. Um... But Judas knew the place. Well, of course he knew the place. He'd been there many times. So that phrase is given to almost assist the reader, assist the hearer, that Judas is the, the snake in the grass. He's the, he's the betrayer among us. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having, uh, having received Lambano, received... Uh, Greek term, the um, uh, this is going to get thick for a bit, so pay attention here. In no way does the word received mean, Bruce, that he was in authority. Uh, Judas is not a leader of any uh, soldiers dispatched out of Jerusalem, out of uh, Terra the Antonio, Antonio Fortress. That's where the soldiers were dispatched out of. Judas is not in authority at all. In fact, it was Rome's policy, not unlike police in Little Rock, to use informants, just play into the lead of an, of an informant, that the informant gets paid, and just follow follow the rat, and they'll take you to the cheese. And that's exactly what they did. Okay, they do it in Little Rock all the time. I, I, cops have told me the stories, you know, that's what you do. You pay the informant the money, and he gives you the intel that you want, you make the arrest. That's how it works. And Rome did the very same thing, had the very same policy. So that's what's going on. So Judas is not in authority by any stretch. Now regarding the Roman cohort, uh, the cohort um, technically is one-tenth of a legion. A legion is 6,000 troops. So taken literally, there are 600 soldiers. 
Okay. And they sit in that garden. What's that? They sit in the garden. <laughs> thank you, Joni. I, I love it. Let's think here. So now, on, before we jump to that conclusion, uh, let's, let's do some research. So historically, there is probably a cohort assigned at the Antonio Fortress. In other words, that's probably all the men that are dispatched to Jerusalem. There might have been some other troops that came in from the city called Separus, which is another garrison city. Maybe, you know, maybe some extra reinforcements because it was Passover. What happens to Jerusalem during Passover? Oh, the city gets chaotic, right? And just, Dave, just a decade or two earlier, a few decades earlier, there were, there were 2,000 men crucified in Jerusalem under the rule of Bivarus because of these Jews who are just rebels. They won't shut their mouths, pay their taxes, and be grateful for the Pax Romana that Rome brings. Why do we have all these messianic pretenders and all these you know, would-be messiahs trying to, to, to be the new Moses that can lead Israel back to the true promised land and kick out these Roman dogs? You know? Why do they have to be such troublemakers? So virus comes in and just slaughters men by the thousands. Okay? I'm telling you, Rome doesn't put up with riots. They don't. And they know that during Passover... It's ripe. It's ripe for some young gun to stand up and, and start yelling, hey, I know the true way. I'm the true leader. I'll, get, I'll lead Israel out of this mess. And just follow me. And let's storm the fortress. And, and Yahweh's on our side. And we'll, we'll kill the Romans and purge the land of these dogs, the, the demons that have crossed the borders. Kind of like, wouldn't it be great if 2,000 demons would jump into pigs and it all drown. That's kind of what we want anyway with these Roman soldiers, you know. That's a prayer of every Jewish man, you know, so they all drown. demons like there was for this we are legion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. for we are many. Yeah, yeah. 6,000, yeah. Six, how many? 6,000 in the legion. So, so, but you get the idea, right? And so, uh, the fact is, Joni, they're probably a full cohort, maybe with some reinforcements, just in the city proper. They're not going to dispatch 600 men. Now, uh, manopulus is a Latin phrase that refers to about 200. That's like a subset out of a cohort. And sometimes those words are almost used interchangeably. Uh, when you look at Acts 23, when Paul is being dispatched to go see the governor, do you know how many men they assign to guard Paul? 470 it's in the book of Acts. 200 foot soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 troops on mounts. They can muscle up. So in all likelihood, Joni, we're looking at two to 300 men easily that are coming to arrest a man who willingly is letting himself be found. Why so many troops? Why do you think? Is it possible? What's that? Interesting. Show of force? Boy, Rome was good at that. They loved the honor-shame game. They loved to prove how weak and how little you are. They loved that. And that was one of the main uh, methods of intimidation. It's just a complete show of force. Uh, a, conquered, a, a conquering general would oftentimes parade 
the conquered king or governor nude behind his chariot with a rope around his neck and parade him throughout the city along with several other victims. A way of completely humiliating your oppressors. Rome was good at that game to put the foot on the neck. They were, they were good at that. But why? Do you think the Pharisees, by the way, the Jewish police, are they not working? Is there not collusion here? Well, they're in this whole thing together. Don't you know it? Okay. So that being the case, Cana, do you think the Pharisees and, and most likely Sadducees are really driving this event because Christ dared to come in and mess up the temple and turn over tables and they said, that's enough. We, all right, we can handle the arguments about what's clean and unclean. We can handle a lot of stuff about on the Sabbath, but nobody messes with the temple. That's it. That's it. Time for him to go. And the plan to kill him the two other Passovers that he was Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, Philip, you're thinking. So remember the references, and he eluded their grasp. Mm -hmm. So how many times have they tried to make an arrest, tried to set up a trap, and he he gets out? Mm -hmm. Do you think they exaggerated to the to the Roman soldiers? Of course they did. You bet they did. This is fear driving this. Oh, absolutely. Believe that what is telling the truth and actually is going to resurrect. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a unique Greek word used later in the text that describes the military commander, the captain of, of like a thousand men who is supervising at least this dispatched Manopoulos of maybe 200, 300 men. Uh, and so, so Mr. Mr. Authority is there, all right? There is collusion, and probably there's been great exaggeration just how dangerous and sneaky and slippery this Jesus character is. And boy, he can get away. You better be careful. You know? And uh, uh, I think it's fascinating. I mean, by the way, let, let's, let's pop over to verse 4. Um, well, back up here. Um, so that they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, if you look at the topography and the maps... Do you think, let's just say it's 300 people, and most likely the Jewish police are the ones carrying the swords, uh, torches, and it's the Romans who are carrying lots of swords. And by the way, the Jewish um, authorities, Philip here, would not be carrying a sword because it's Passover and they don't want to violate like a, like a Sabbath rule or something. They're carrying clubs. That's what they're carrying. And Mark's gospel verifies they brought clubs. So you've got swords and clubs and lanterns. Do you think that the relatively short distance down the, the walkway, uh, not far from Antonia Fortress, 300 men, lanterns, sorns, clanging gear, do you think they could hear them coming? Mm -hmm. Do you think they could see them coming? In the dark of night? Yeah. Probably smell <laughs> coming, you know. Do you think they had a chance to run? Uh, oh, yeah. Although they, it was a wall. And, and by the way, the wall might be no higher than these chairs. Right. Sure. You know, it's like Tim Hawkins and his joke on 
we're going to pray a hedge of protection around <laughs> you. <laughs> how, how tall is a hedge? You know, it's probably that big. And, well, Satan can just walk right over that hedge, you know. So Tim has a real funny uh, sketch on that. But, yeah, we're not, I mean, we're not talking about 10 feet high, you know, concrete walls, razor wire. No way are centurions getting in. No, they can get in easily. I mean, it is, it is fish in the barrel. They've got them. So, but, but the whole point is that uh, they could have run. It's in the dark of the night. It is the time to run, and they don't. They don't run. So pretty fascinating. Look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So just a couple of things, and we'll stop here. Um, when Jesus answers, I am, what do you think is going on, Jim? And, you know, I have, a, I have a dear client who for years, uh, her mother called her uh, stupid and added a few extra adjectives to really make it painful, okay? And that little girl heard that so much that she thought that kind of was her name. Okay, can you imagine that? And, and because of what is called imprinting, the concept of being stupid, a stupid, ir irresponsible person, was so deeply imprinted in the brain that she believed that's who she was. Okay? And then, by God's grace, you know, I get a referral and, and I start seeing her. And all of us and I start saying, well, hey, let's, let's consider a new title for you. Maybe let's start with SMART. The opposite of stupid, right? Well, guess what? If you've heard that you're stupid 10,000, I don't know how many times, 100,000, I don't know. Let's just say 10,000 times. And as a little girl, two and three, like, can you imagine my granddaughter Caroline being told that she's stupid? What that would do to her? Or starting a little Isaiah off on that idea, right? That you're stupid and I wish you'd never been born, you're so irritating kind of thing. What that would do to their, their sense of self. And I come along and say, oh, well, you're smart. Oh, well, she's fixed, right? No, after 10,000, 50,000, you're stupid, you're stupid, I'm stupid, I'm stupid, I'm stupid. And then one person of significance in her life finally says, you're smart. It takes quite a bit to truly heal. And Holy Spirit can do it just like that. He has more than the power to do it. But sometimes he doesn't because I think he wants us to learn faith in the struggle. Look at how Jesus defines himself. He says, I am. How's that for settling up on your identity and feeling really good about who you are? <laughs> right? Isn't that beautiful? He is the great I am. That's the tetragrammaton, the four letters, Yahweh. The great I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light. I am the way. I'm the truth. And if there, boy, if there ever was a time to be tempted to lie, don't you think it'd be like right then? 
we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And he goes, uh, <laughs> that guy right there, you know. And just You can see a far side cartoon. What a great opportunity to lie, you know, and point to somebody else. Or, nope, I'm Louie. I, I have no idea who that guy is. This is my brother Frank, you know. Do anything to get away from it. I see the lion roaring here. I see him roar. I, I think that he is absolutely unapologetic of who he is, and he is so deeply resolved in his identity that he has no problem roaring. I mean, the lion of Judah roars. And he roars so loudly, verse 6, that they drew back and they fell to the ground. Can you imagine those knuckleheads with swords and clubs and lanterns and, and next thing you know, they're on their backsides? And he didn't move. He just spoke his name. And then they got to gather their wits and dust off them themselves and <clears throat> get control again, you know. Uh, beautiful story. Okay. Exitus illustrius vivorum. Your life is illustrated or revealed in your death. Let's stop here and uh, I want to open it up to you. What do you see so far? as being the uh, being significant in the passion narrative that um, that we need to lay hold of. By the way, look closely at one to three. Where's the part about the disciples being sleepy and they can't keep watch? Hmm? It's not there? It's not there. Where's the part about Jesus begging God, hey, I really, I don't want to do this. Is there another way? It's not there. Lots of things are missing that you find in the synoptics. Now, historically, did they happen? Sure they did. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not lying or giving detail that didn't happen. Why does John overlook it? Why does John think it's not appropriate to include it in the passion narrative? Because Jesus has accepted that this is what he, God the Father, needs and wants him to do. Yep. Yeah, John is intentionally presenting him as the man that is absolutely in control. Roman, Rome's not in control. Pharisees are not in control. Sadducees aren't in control. What does he say in John 10? I willfully lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And I'll pick it back up again when I'm good and ready. You know, He is the lion that roars. And he soars high like an eagle and like a lamb. I see lion illusions in John, not just eagle. But he roars and yet he can soar above all the mess. And John presents him as being absolutely epitomizing courage and control. <clears throat> To the point that all of those things that show his humanity in the synoptics are not even included in John. What amazing. You're the body of Christ. Just these first few verses we've covered. 
Why does this matter for us today who claim to be followers of Jesus? We must be unafraid to acknowledge openly our faith in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. I find it interesting that even though we know in the other other books does not expect the the um, ask God to take this cup and all that, but it's not put here. The fact that he said the first thing that said whom are you seeking? He was in control. He yeah. was author in the authority. Yeah. yeah. Not the Roman soldiers. Not he's he's initiating his own arrest. Yeah. Absolutely. That shows strength. Oh. Far absolutely. superior than yeah. all the A wicked man runs when nobody chases him. But the righteous are bold as a lion. And struck by <clears throat> Almost with John, what I see is um, trying to portray some courage because for just Jesus and the apostles to be there, disciples to be there and to be facing that many soldiers, and for Peter to have the thought of taking out a sword and striking someone, there was obviously he spoke with that authority and it gave him courage <laughs> that I think, well, why don't we have that courage? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and it's cool. interesting to me, too, that they don't say that he has his ear back on. Correct. That's only found in Luke. Mm-hmm. Luke 22, 50, 51. Yeah. Healing of Malchus' ear. Yeah. You also find interesting that you see, also see Jesus as God. You see his authority, mm-hmm. you see his power, mm-hmm. you see his control, you see his courage, you see his boldness as God is. So if you look at the grand scheme of things, that means we serve a God that's in authority, that has control in the chaos, who has everything that we need when we keep our sights on him. Mm-hmm. So you think about, John came from a perspective as showing when everything's chaotic and you're surrounded by 600 or 200 soldiers, you can stay in complete control because Jesus is in the midst of the problem. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Mm, makes so much sense, doesn't it, Cain? Isn't that beautiful that we could trust him at that level? Yeah. I'm so fond of 1 Peter 4.19. And by the way, when, when you read First and Second Peter, knowing that he's the guy that really failed, for example, you know, they, they, they come up, uh, Jesus, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. How's that in contrast to the little girl, little slave girl saying, hey, you've got a redneck accent. You, you're from Galilee, right? And you follow Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm not understanding that. What a contrast, right? That one man absolutely unashamed of his identity 
another man absolutely doing the best he can to prove that's not who he is. Uh, and Peter is the guy that, that committed the, the really bad sin. You know, we, we kind of think of sins categorically. There's certain ones. You have the little white lie, and then, you know, it gets worse. Man, Peter really, he goes down in history as being the guy that did the wrong thing, right? And yet he's the man that wrote First Peter and wrote Second Peter. And he says, Ken, when you read it from that perspective that are beautiful, it's the story of a man who's restored. And he says in chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let us entrust our souls to a faithful God, a faithful creator. Uh, Peter gets that you can trust him. And he's struggling with it here. What's that? I was going to say, just thinking about Peter too, uh, when he was with Jesus, he didn't have any, I guess, doubts in his faith in that moment because he had 400 guys ready to arrest Jesus, and he's the one that goes, I can take them all on. Right. <laughs> and then he's also the same person that, apart from Christ, can't even defend himself amongst the girl, like you're saying. Yep. And so yep. in our own walk, do we know that we have a line mm. on our side? Do we yeah. know that... Uh, we have a savior that could have stopped the whole thing, and you see that with the words that he said. But yeah. Even gave himself up. Yeah, yeah. You know that what what C.S. Lewis does with Aslan and and Lucy. What's Lucy's relationship to Aslan? What's it like? What's that? Childlike. She likes to snuggle in on his mane, you know, and snuggle in. The ultimate safe place for Lucy is, is getting next to his mane. So beautiful. Yeah. Someone else, why does this matter? I love verse 8. I told you that I'm he. Let these go. Don't arrest them. Now you know what's fascinating? Rome, they were radically committed to suppressing anyone who upsets the equilibrium of peace. Troublemakers would be crushed. That's just Roman policy. Okay. When Peter takes up that sword, and he's probably going for the throat to, to really kill this guy. And the guy probably ducked, and it just clipped the ear. Peter takes the swing, the guy ducks, and just clips his ear. So Peter really meant to kill the guy. All, in all likelihood, I mean, I doubt Peter went like that and said, could you hold still? Right? <laughs> I don't think that happens. It's not a British thing here, okay? You know, those Brits are so nice that when that happened, instantly Peter would have been arrested. I mean, unquestioned. He's a troublemaker. He just proved it. That's what you do to break out and start a riot. And the fact that he's not arrested is just unthinkable. To have the authority to say, let these go their way. And then Peter, it's like, okay, things are kind of stable. Don't do anything stupid. <laughs> you know, it's... Ah, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And 
They let him get away with it. Could have, should have, would have been arrested. Trying to have a plan for Peter. Don't you think so? How many days was it between uh, this scene in the garden and the day of Pentecost? Mm, well, you're looking at 50 days out, so. So 53 days? And what did Peter do? Chapter 2 of Acts. Peter taking a stand with the eleven raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. He preached a sermon. This impulsive, you know, jump to conclusion type of guy, sword swimming guy, preached a sermon. And had he been arrested, in all likelihood, Dave, he would have been quickly killed, and that would be the end of it. Yeah. No First Peter, no Second Peter, no great sermon in Acts two. The rest in Acts four and five. Restoration. Yeah. By Christ yeah. John twenty one. The restoration. Beautiful restoration. Yeah. 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 Anyone else? gives me hope that God had a plan for Peter with all his flaws. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you also think about the power of the Holy Spirit, what it does. You have 12 scared men who ran and when they waited on the promise of the Holy Spirit and when the Holy Spirit fell upon them like fire, they were able to do things they were not able to do. Yes. So that's so you see, that's the same thing the Lord wants to do to us. Yeah. Exactly. He wants to fill us with the fire of the Holy Spirit, yeah. so you can stand up and give a message yeah. like Peter. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the same thing. It's always okay. Let me show you the humanity of man, how fearful and scared and all these other issues. But when my presence is here, he say I'm change everything. That's what he wants to do. I'm going to change everything. Your fears, you forget that. Yeah. Your preconceived notions, your mom, all that goes away. Mm. When the power of the Holy Spirit comes and you submit to it, and boom, mm. the world is revolutionized. The 12 scared men that everybody talks about. But in that moment, none of that matters. Yeah. All they heard was the voice, the words of God coming through out of the mouth of unlearned, an uneducated Absolutely. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? So one final thing that I think you'll appreciate. Do you remember David, King David? Yes. Remember son Absalom? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that Absalom launched a coup mm -hmm. to try to take over and steal the kingdom from his dad? Mm -hmm. Do you remember his advisors, David's advisors? And what did they say? You better slip out the back door and go and hide. Did you know that he crossed the Kidron Valley and went to the Mount of Olives. And Ahithophel, the betrayer, do you know what happened to him? No, no, Ahithophel. He voluntarily committed suicide by hanging. There are only two 
recorded in all the scriptures. Wow. Uh, his fell. And David running and, and going to the Olive, Olive Garden in view of a great betrayal and a scandal, <clears throat> just like Jesus. And Judas goes out and hangs himself, just like a hit. So, verse 5, the answer then, Jesus of Nazarene, he said, I am. Judas, also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. You know, sometimes a man is known by his friends, and sometimes he's known by his enemies. Who we stand with reveals so much about who we are, right? Judas made his choice, and who he's going to stand with. He made his choice. Okay. Let me pray. Abba Father, thank you so much for the encouragement of your word, the truth that sets free. I stand with Dave Steinman that there is hope for me, just like there is hope for Peter. Abba Father, your grace is beyond words. <clears throat> your commitment to protect us, you have proven again and again and again that you are the good shepherd and that you lay your life down for the sheep. Uh, Lord, I think all of us here tonight, there's little places inside our hearts where we need to take a stand, make a stand, and make a decision on who our friends are going to be and who our enemies are going to be. And to be unashamed of you and unashamed of the gospel. Have mercy on us, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>